0: Let us begin our sermon with prayer. Gracious Lord, as we look at the repentance of the people of Nineveh, we ask you to bless the words of our sermon, that we may learn true repentance and live in it every day until the day when you take us up to be with you in heaven. Amen. Our text for our sermon is Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 and verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to Nineveh, the great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh, just as the word of the Lord had commanded. Now, Nineveh was a great city to God. It required a three-day walk. Jonah walked through the city for a day, and he called out, Forty more days, and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. The men of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least. When God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster which he said he would bring on them, and he did not carry it out. This is the word of our Lord. When you talk about the prophet Jonah, people think Jonah and the well. The amazing thing is, the Hebrew actually says the big fish. It may have been a well. It may have been some other kind of fish. But they forget the whole point of that book. The Assyrians were mean. When they conquered people, as they did a couple generations later, when they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel... They cut off the young men's thumbs, their right thumbs, so they couldn't hold a sword against them, and they would cut off an ear just to mark them as being captured. They would then haul them all off, except for the ones they considered the poor and the least significant, they would haul them all off and distribute them throughout their empire in places where they usually didn't speak the language to prevent them from banding together. The Assyrians were mean. They probably are the first ones to have an army full time. And that's what archaeologists have been able to find so far, archaeologists. And so when God says to Jonah, I'm not happy with the people of the capital of Assyria, Nineveh. I want you to go and preach repentance. Jonah's concerned that they're going to repent. He doesn't want them to. He wants God to wipe them out. So Jonah says, okay, Lord, I'll get right on that. And he heads towards Tarshish, which is more than likely the furthest point in Spain. He heads to the edge of the known world. He wants the Ninevites to not repent. He wants them to be wiped out. And of course, as he gets on a boat in the sea, God sends the turbulent storm and the sailors to save his life. As he tells him, you're going to have to throw me overboard. And this is when he gets swallowed by some big aquatic animal that later spits him up on the land. And when he gets to Nineveh, his preaching isn't so great, is it? He doesn't tell them about the coming Savior. He doesn't have love. He just says, 40 more days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. It's a reminder for us. If you're stuck in a sin, how would you like it if a brother or sister in Christ just went up to you and said, Knock it off or you're going to hell. No love of God or anything. Well, the people do repent. And Jonah gets upset. He's sitting up on a hill waiting with the best view to watch God rain down hellfire on him. And it doesn't happen. And in Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we're told, But to Jonah, all this seemed very bad, and he became very angry. He prayed to the Lord, Lord, wasn't this exactly what I said when I was still in my own country? That's why I previously fled to Tarshish, because I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in mercy, and you relent from sending disaster. So now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. It's sad. I've served people that are so motivated by the law that when a brother or sister in Christ falls into a sin, they cannot think of love for them and love for the Lord. They can't think like, like Jonah did there. I know you're gracious and merciful. All they can think about is disciplining the brother or sister in Christ. And what happens when their repentance ends up not being the show that the Ninevites put on? Today, we are going to ask the question, what does true repentance look like? Now, I have to immediately add a qualifier because we all have a sinful nature that can quickly jump to the wrong conclusion. We cannot read a heart. You and I are not God. Only God can do that. Whether I was a layman or as a pastor, I have gone to talk to people who weren't showing some of the fruits of repentance we're going to cover and come to find out Their their thoughts were in the right place. There was something I didn't know. So please, don't use that as an excuse. If a brother or sister in Christ is dwelling in their sin like a pig living in the mire, please don't play the role of God and judge them. But also don't turn around and if they're not showing the fruits of repentance, think that, well, that's okay, they can live in their sin. Just remember, you can't read a heart. Only God can do that. So, Very first of all, as we ask that question, what does true repentance look like? We have to ask, what is repentance? The Hebrew word used in our text is a deep sigh. You know when you know you've screwed up. The Greek word in the New Testament that's commonly used is a change of mind. Either Old Testament or New Testament, repentance as we translate it, has a narrow meaning and a wider meaning. The narrow meaning is simply sorrow over sin. Let me put that in different words. The person got busted and they're not happy because they're facing the consequences. That's the narrow meaning. The wider meaning is far more complicated but far more beautiful. The person is a believer. They know that God has become a man and lived and died for their sins and has saved them. And it's because of that they have a different way of thinking about sin. They don't want to embrace and live in sin. Now, our sinful nature... Gets past us several times a day, just in our thoughts alone. And so they end up sinning. But in that sin, they're not happy that they thought sinful thoughts, that they did sinful deeds. They confess their sin to God and they know they trust. That God has become a man, kept the law perfectly for them in thought, word and deed, took the punishment for them and died. So they trust in forgiveness now, when Scripture uses repentance, whether in Old or New Testament, in the narrow sense, which is simply, I got busted and I don't want to face the consequences, it usually won't use the word alone. So a great example of that is Mark chapter 1, verse 15, part of our gospel lesson for the day, where it means the narrower sense because it's used with another word. We're told, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. He said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, he obviously wouldn't be including the idea of trusting in Jesus for forgiveness if he was already adding and believing in the gospel. So here it's truly have sorrow over your sin. And then he adds the word that means to trust in the gospel, to trust that the Savior God has become a man and done the work for us. When that word for repentance is used in the wider sense, which is only for believers having a complete change in mind of how we even think about our sin, that's usually when it appears alone. And again, that means you know that God has done the work to save you. God has put a new person in your heart that's engrafted to Christ. So it's, you may still have repentance because you're you're you don't like the consequences, but you didn't want to sin in the first place. You struggled with it. You're not happy that you've sinned. And you trust that in God's forgiveness with that. So the difference there is as wide as the Grand Canyon. One is an act of faith and the other is simply just not wanting to deal with the consequences. Bank robber gets busted. He wishes he hadn't have been so foolish, but if he could have gotten away with it, he would have continued on, right? Right. So one is just simply not wanting the consequences. The other is recognizing, I have a loving God. I'm his redeemed child. And to glorify him, I didn't want to sin in the first place. And when I did, I confessed it to him and trusted. So which of those did Nineveh have? Was Nineveh the repentance that even an unbeliever can have? Uh Uh-oh, we're busted. And they certainly believed in a plethora of gods. So it's very easy to see how they could say, all right, This God seems to be powerful and he seems to be able to do what he's talked about. We'd better repent. Well, Jesus talks about Nineveh in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 through 41 in a way that can really help lean us in one direction about whether their repentance was just we got busted or whether they were trusting in God's mercy. So in Matthew 12, starting at verse 38, we're told, then some of the experts of the law and Pharisees replied, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation wishes for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, but one even greater than Jonah is here. I want to emphasize, Jesus says they will stand up in the judgment. That's judgment day, right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that the saints, that would be you, you're a believer, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to deal with insignificant lawsuits? Unbelievers are not going to judge the world on judgment day. Only believers are. So a person could argue that the people of Nineveh will stand up as witnesses because he says they will stand up, but in the judgment. But it seems more like Jesus is alluding to the fact that they're believers who will be standing up and saying, when we had the chance to repent and trust in God's mercy, we did as a judgment against those who had not. What does true repentance look like? Well, only God can read a heart. And we got to ask as we ask this question, are we talking about just sorrow over sin? I got busted, which an unbeliever can do. Or is it also that of a believer, which is a trust in a savior? Nineveh shows themselves at least to seem to be trusting in God's mercy in the fact that Jesus mentions they'll stand up in the judgment. But again, it could be understood the other way. But more so in jo- Jonah chapter three, verse five, we're told the men of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. They're fasting, they're wearing sackcloth, that was uncomfortable. That would scratch at your skin. Seemed to be more than just an outward show, because it says they believed God. It seemed to be showing that they were genuinely sorrowful over their sins. And the interesting thing is, there in verse 5, when the text says the Ninevites believed God, the Hebrew word used is the word where we say amen, truth. It's the same Hebrew word for faith when applied to the father of believers. For example, in Genesis 15, verse 16, we're told Abram, Abraham, the father of believers, Abram believed the Lord. That's that Hebrew word, amen. Abram believed the Lord and he, that's the Lord, credited to him as righteousness. So there's a lot of evidence that seems to be pointing that the Ninevites trusted in God as believers, not just as we got busted. And you can argue the other way, but we also have to ask, you know, there is a commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Is there enough evidence in the Bible for those who say not? that? Is there enough evidence that they could say the Ninevites did not believe in God and were just simply sorry because they got busted? Because if there's not sufficient evidence, then we're supposed to assume the best. We do not bear false witness against our neighbor. Even more so though there's other fruits of repentance they show besides they do besides an outward show. they confessed their sins. One of the verses that was missing in our text today, which is right in the middle, is Jonah chapter three verse eight, where they uh, announced to each other, instead, let the people and animals be covered with sackcloth, let everyone call fervently to God. Let them turn from their evil way and from the violence that is in their hand. If they are publicly saying, we've got to turn from our evil way and we've got to turn from our violence, they're confessing that they are acting evil and are violent. They literally are confessing their sins to each other and to God. You'd think that's not a big deal, is it? But whether I've been a layman or a pastor, whether it's myself or others, I've often been amazed... That what psychologists call confirmation bias, where a person may not even know all the facts, but they've got a filter and they don't want to hear the facts. And you point out a sin and they don't want to hear their sin. When a person confesses their sin, they know they've messed up. And that confession is clearly there with the Ninevites. All the more, they were willing to stop their sins. Listen to what they said in the second half of Jonah chapter 3, verse 8. As they said to each other, let them turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. They're saying we've got to stop being evil. We've got to stop being so violent or we're we're going to be in trouble. So this is what gets difficult. Sometimes we have our pet sins, as I call them. I have sins in which I'm weak, and it's very easy for my sinful nature to slip past my new man who's pretty good in other areas of keeping my sinful nature in a headlock. You have different sins that are your pet sins. This isn't one slipping past the goalie, if you will. They recognized it's time to stop living in our sin. It's time to stop. Now, there's going to be a struggle to do that, isn't there? But they were willing to stop their sins. Ultimately, they trusted in God's mercy for forgiveness. That is the gospel. As we're told in another verse that wasn't part of our text, Jonah 3, verse 9, they said, Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. They trusted in God's mercy and forgiveness. An unbeliever is only concerned with not getting busted for the consequences. And the amazing thing is, God accepted their repentance. That was the last verse in our text. When God saw their actions, that they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster which he said he would bring on them, and so he did not carry it out. So obviously, I have every reason to believe, and so do you, that these people had repentance in the wider sense. They were not just upset they got busted, they wished they could take it back, and they were trusting in God's mercy and forgiveness. Now, let's apply that to ourselves. True repentance among a believer is sorrow over sin and trust in the Savior. Now, you often hear me talk about there are often two kinds of ways we can fall off the razor's edge of balancing the law and the gospel. The legalist who always makes a rule, a condition of your salvation in varying degrees, or the antinomian who says Christ fulfilled the law, God's holiness no longer applies to us at all. And the law is not a means of salvation. When a legalist in a congregation is trying to deal with a brother or sister in Christ who is stuck in a sin, they're not going to be concerned with whether or not they trust in Christ. The love of God is not in their heart. As they're talking about things, you're not going to hear them talking about Jesus' forgiveness of sins and love for Jesus, which is why we don't want this person to embrace their sin. Their only concern is going to be the outward action. You were stuck in this sin, you stopped doing it good. And lots of times the legalists will even make it sound like they cannot have forgiveness unless there are certain conditions. Unless you do action A or B. And the antinomian, they won't mind that the person's embracing the sin at all because they don't see the need for God's forgiveness there. Ah, God is love. He'll accept you the way it is. They don't care about having sorrow over sin or seeing at least the fruits of that sorrow that come from being connected to Christ. Ultimately, as I said, we cannot read hearts. That's God's job. However, when a brother or sister in Christ comes to us and shows us our sin and we see our sin, we show the fruits of sorrow over our sin. We confess our sin. If a brother or sister in Christ have shown us our sin and we've truly sinned, we admit it. And we've got to be careful then that we're not browbeating brothers and sisters in Christ with tender hearts over sins they haven't committed, but we're being petty. And we struggle over our sin. That usually means stopping it, not embracing it. But this is why I keep pointing out we can't read hearts. So I'm going to use an example. You have two people who struggle with the sin of alcoholism. One can just be embracing it and not care. And they can both be drunken in the drunk tank, if you will. The other one may have fought in a way none of us could see and lost the fight because they are weak. How dare we judge that person? They may be praying, Jesus, forgive me, I've done it again. But... When a person is sorry over their sin, it might be a sin they truly are weak towards, tremendously weak. But they're not going to dwell in it like a pig in the mire. We've got to be careful about that. Some sins are easier to stop than others. And ultimately, we trust in God's mercy for forgiveness. This kind of repentance only comes when we know that God has become a man and He did all the work to save us. And it's because of that that the Holy Spirit in our heart, having engrafted us to Christ, we view sin in a different way. Yes, we struggle with it. Not just because we don't want to be busted and face the consequences, but because a loving God has saved us and we want to glorify Him. And so when we lose the struggle, we trust that Jesus has forgiven us and we keep up the struggle. Amen. Now he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.